This is Peter Biebergall, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Okay, everyone, today we've got John Kosh back for another round on My Rock Moment. And if you recall, Kosh is a Grammy Award-winning art director and former design director for Apple Records. He's also the man behind a long list of iconic album covers. Now, his breadth of work was way too extensive to cover in one episode, so today we're going to touch on his time working with Marvin Gaye, Dan Fogelberg, Richard Pryor, and we do have a couple more Beatles memories to add to the mix as well. So let's get into it. Kosh, welcome back to My Rock Moment. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, a pleasure to have you. And it was great to meet you in person at the last weekend, the Love Story premiere. Oh, right. May Pang. Yes, that was lovely, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, we were sitting in the same row. Yes, right. Staring up at the screen with our necks almost broken. I know. That's I what happens when you, when you sort of book late. <laughs> <laughs> we were two back or something. But you and you and May apparently have a history. You were you were dear friends. Yes. I mean, when she was working for ABCO, you know, just about the time that uh, John and she were sort of getting together, um, yeah, she came to stay with us in London for uh, quite a while, actually. Oh, wow. You were on the ground floor for, for the beginning of that story. It's true, true, true. So we went through the whole thing, you know. So Well, it was an interesting film. You know, when it comes out streaming, I'm definitely going to push my uh, my listeners and my followers to to check it out. But last time we spoke, we covered quite a bit of ground. Mm. Um, we talked about, you know, the album covers for Let It Be and Abbey Road, um, Hotel California. We talked about your work with Linda Ronstadt. But given your roster of albums and all the bands you've worked with, there's a lot more to talk about. There was a lot more unsaid. So we had to have you back. Well, thank you. I'm I'm thrilled and honored. So am I. Well, I want to stick with the Beatles for a second because, you know, we talked about last time the fact that you were the creative director for Apple Records. And you had become close with John Lennon and the rest of the band. And as a result... Of course, you got to do Abbey Road and Let It Be, but you were also there for an iconic moment in Beatles history. On January 30th, 1969, as most people know, the Beatles performed their final public performance on the rooftop of the uh, Apple headquarters at 3 Seville Row. Yes. And you were there. Yeah, I snuck up there. Well, actually, I had to deliver a message to... A dear friend of mine, who's also the Beatles roadie, Kevin Harrington, shout out for that man, because um, they were recording in the basement and Kevin was, you know, being the roadie, I think it was actually, had to, he had to hold up the lyrics for John to read when he sort of got lost somewhere, you know. Um, so I delivered a quick note to him and then thought, well, I'm staying. I just ducked behind a chimney pot. And, 
as people diverged onto from coming across the rooftops, the people coming out of their offices, going onto the roof and coming along. So there was quite an audience in the end on the ground and on the roof. So I just merged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you can see. I mean, you can be seen. You can see me, yes, yes, kind of peering around to see what's going on. Yeah, because as as designers and art directors, you're always behind the camera and you never ever stray in front of it. (laughs) Well, that was a time to stray in front of it. And it's up for debate as to whose idea it was from the band. Was it Lennon's? So they say. Well, if you've seen the Get Back documentary, um, it sort of evolved. I mean, Ringo didn't want to do it. Um, Perhaps he did want to do it. Uh, um, George, I don't know, watch the documentary because they sort of, he goes back and forth as to whose actual idea it was. But, but I think it was just a consensus and, you know, let's get it over and done with, you know. Right, because that was supposed to be their foray, right, uh, into playing live again. Right, exactly. It was supposed to be a live album, yeah. Right. What was the overall sentiment once it was done? From the guys, well, they all disappeared pretty fast, actually. I mean, because I think Ringo had to go back to making a movie. George was making his album, uh, um, a great one too. Um, and John and Yoko were involved in all their sort of bits and pieces. And I think, yeah, I think Ringo was making the Magic Christian, I believe. I may have got my d- um, dates wrong, but um, but Jenny, there was for the, there was for that afternoon. There was euphoria. There was no doubt about it. Yeah, sure. Well, what did it feel like to actually be sitting up there and see the audience below figure it out, realize that they're watching the Beatles play on the rooftop of Apple? For the very last time, yes. We say yeah. realize, but I don't know because it was, it was mixed emotions. First of all, it was freezing up there. And it was just like, yes, it looked so cold. <laughs> um, and once they start playing, you can't leave. You know, There's no way you can just walk through the set and say, bye, fellas, you know. Um, so I, I, yeah, I mean, I knew it was history was being made, you know, but then again, that you, you, at the time, I mean, I was a callow youth, well, probably not quite as youthful, but, um, and so, you know, you just don't really, it doesn't hit you until later and you suddenly feel, Christ, I was up there, wasn't I? You know, yeah. just... <laughs> I was part of that. Yeah. Yeah, but it did look cold. <laughs> Well, there was another milestone for Lennon in 69 that I want to touch on. And, you know, he married Yoko at that time. And there was one story I recently heard, and I would love your side of it. So for those listening, a little bit of backstory. John Lennon um, had an exhibit at the Lee Nordis Gallery in New York, which ran early 1970, about February 1970. Right. And he had created a portfolio of drawings in 1969 as a wedding present to Yoko. Yes. And the drawings had depicted uh, their wedding, intimate portraits from their honeymoon, that bed-in they had. And the whole thing was called Bag One. Right. Some of those images were quite erotic. And I know at the time they caused a little bit of a stir and you were involved somehow in hand delivering these 14 lithographs to the gallery because there was some danger in them actually not making it or arriving, correct? Oh, yeah. There was, there was a censorship problem. There was definitely a problem going through customs in New York. I mean, 
So I, I mean, I trundled into onto a. I don't know whether it was a seven forty seven or a seven oh seven. I can't remember that. Um, and I had the portfolio with me. You know, traveling first class, you give it to the, the steward, and and yeah. So I walked it through, and um, I didn't actually go through customs. I just went straight through, and there was a limo waiting for me, and took, which took me to the hotel. My hope, which was the Warwick. Everyone stayed at the Warwick in those days when the beaches had a little sweet there. When I say sweet, it was shoebox, you know. Um, <laughs> so I had, yeah, it was my job to deliver them to Lee Nordness himself uh, in his apartment um, on the Upper East Side. And so I did. I had never known about this exhibit, which was mind blowing to me. Um, you know, they're quite intimate and hey, Yoko seemed fine showing them off. Oh, sure. I know that uh, before the New York uh, gallery exhibit, he had shown them in London and there were some issues. Was it the Robert Fraser gallery? I mean, they were, yes. yeah, they were pals, Robert Fraser and Lenny, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there was some, there were, were some issues where the... Um, Oh, I think there were there were questions in the Houses of Parliament, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So I thought that was so funny that you were even involved in any of that. And this was a big to-do. Salvador Dali showed up, right? Uh, which was a very funny story, because he turned up with an ocelot on a chain, which was not unusual. Apparently, he lived in St. Regis, and it wasn't, wasn't far away. Um, yeah, so he walked in with this ocelot on a chain, which just started to pee over people's legs and whatever else. And, and we've got the elite of, you know, of the American, uh, of the... New York sort of socialite, socialite art collectors there, you know, and this cat is going around lifting its leg and sort of peeing on them, which I thought was very funny. But I thought this is getting crazy because it's the humidity in this place is getting terrible. It was packed. So I fought my way to the door and hailed a cab and left. Yeah, I'm sure the ocelot's funny until it's you getting peed on. Yes, right, precisely. Apparently a lot of paintings have been damaged by that ocelot in, in galleries, which um, now they're selling for much more because... Salvador Dali's cat has peed on them. Maybe he knew what he was doing. Standing in the dockets of Hampton, trying to get to Holland or France. The man in the match says, You've got to go back. You know, they didn't even give us a chance. Christ, you know it ain't easy. You know how hard it is. Well, I want to um, I want to jump to James Taylor. You worked with him on a number of albums. You worked on his greatest hits, JT, yes. uh, Flag, and Dad Loves His Work. And, you know, that was, during the course of those four albums, that was a real tumultuous time for James. I mean, obviously there was the drug use, yes. but, you know, he had become a family man in the, that time. And I know that that domestic living was hard for him. And I honed in particularly on the last album that you did with him, which was Dad Loves His Work. Right. And the title was inspired by the fact that Carly was frustrating with his constant travel and his tour schedule. And she wanted him home more. She wanted him with the kids. So he came out with that album, you know, Dad Loves His Work. Yeah, it was like an apology, I guess. I don't, yeah. Yeah, but it's the concept for, this, for the picture of this came from, you know, one of John, James's, like, you know, James is quite, uh, amusingly crazy at times, you know. <laughs> Apparently, he was walking down Fifth Avenue, and they were someone was 
making a lot of sparks because they were doing some plumbing with the drains. And he said, he just came into the studio and said, I want sparks. So Aaron Rappaport, my friend, photographer, and I spent days with um, diamond drills, diamonds, chainsaws, different pipes to see which could make the best sparks without burning you. Because because <laughs> I suddenly had visions of sort of, you know, burn holes in sort of uh, James's clothes and oh god what are we going to do but actually we managed to pull it off quite well because he's armored and he's greased if you notice that yes he's greased he's got the goggles and another uh photo he's got you know the apron on he looks like right. an old we got the, yeah. we got the, all the you know there's a fire marshal i mean it was it was a big to do um we, to make sure that james didn't burn himself or you know fall over even and land on something you know so it was yeah. Yeah, we 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 do a lot of crazy things with James. Like for uh, for JT, we actually sort of squeezed him into a plexiglass square. So when you got an inner sleeve and you pulled it out, he was a perfect square, you know. Because the poor bugger couldn't stand up after we did this, you know, because he was crammed into this plexiglass square, which we airbrushed out. So he just magically made a square, you know. Um, but yeah, he could hardly stand for like an hour afterwards when we got him out of that thing. His body was so contorted. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, you know, he, he was always going for a, you know, for a glass. He was very funny to work with. He was fun to work with. You you two had a, a, a good friendship. Yeah. Well, it, was, it wasn't, wasn't a close friendship, you know, because, you know, he's, most of the time he's in New York and wherever else. But whenever we got together, we had great photo sessions. I mean, there's outtakes and outtakes of wonderful pictures yeah. you know, on three of the albums because The Greatest Hits was just typographical. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's plenty of uh, yeah. I mean, these sessions would take a whole day. You know, we cater for them, make them, make them comfortable, and uh, you know, we just go <laughs> see what happens. Jumping from James here, I, I wanted to also dive into Dan Fogelberg because uh, you did so many albums with him, um, and I know it started around 1977, and the timing of that. I would assume, you know, was right after Hotel California working with the Eagles. I know that Dan Fogelberg was very close with the Eagles. He particularly had a good friendship with Joe Walsh. I didn't know if that working relationship came about because of the Eagles. Uh, it did in a way because Irving Azoff was his manager and Irving Azoff, that was his first client. Dan was his first client. And so um, Dan wasn't getting on very well with the art department of, uh, of his record company. He had his own label, Full Moon. Um, but was it going out on CBS at the time? Or anyway, uh, he was—he was Dan's difficult. Okay, um, and so I was pulled in um, to work with him outside of the label, which is how I generally worked anyway. So I wasn't tethered, you know. Um, and D Dan realised that all of a sudden he doesn't have to put up with what they were giving him. He can now get in the mix. And then he realised that I wasn't working for the label and I was out to have fun and do what he would like to do. And mm. so we just hit it off. And um, from that point on, you know, we just uh, uh, worked together very, very well. You know, I pop up and visit. He had this he had this house on the top of um, the Continental Divide. It was at the 14, 15,000 foot, whatever it was, it was way up there. And I sort of slap up there. The very first time I went there, it was in the snow. And I got up there and he welcomed me in and sort of uh, said, hey, have a beer, you know. And um, not realizing that you don't really 
want to drink in that thin air. You know? oh, yes, that altitude and that, yep. Yeah, so of course I just, I'm out. So the next morning I found myself tucked up nicely in bed. <laughs> 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 I had the first good night's sleep I've ever <laughs> That's too funny. Now, you said he was difficult. Why was he difficult? Well, he knew what he wanted, but he couldn't quite, uh, he couldn't quite, I don't know, he confused people with, uh, I mean, it's very good. I don't know how to explain this because um, he could be sort of like, if he doesn't see what he, he's getting what he wants, he gets kind of, you know, frustrated because he can't explain what he wants, you know. So and the record company, the labels are not prepared to go through the lengths mm-hmm. of showing him the different procedures and the different ways to getting to what he wants, uh, which are also at the same time economical because, you know, you can do anything you like if you destroy, you know, another forest in Oregon. You know, but, um, So he, he understood that and he understood that um, we got to the point where uh, if he was late with his record, he could with impunity blame me and blame the album cover for being late. And vice versa. And I could say, well, I can't deliver the album cover because he's still working on it. So the record company were just like, you know, didn't know what to do with both of us. So I covered his ass and he covered mine, you know, and eventually we came out, you know, with the with the goods. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first album you did with him was Netherlands, um, yeah. first of eight albums. And he had said, I found this interesting about that album specifically, he said, that was a real seminal record. I think that was the first mature record I ever made. To me, when I listened to the first three, that's a kid. I think Netherlands was the man growing up. And I think it was musically mature, but also the lyrics finally had some real depth and philosophical strength to them that I'd never had before. That's true. Yes. And he said that to me. He said that to me as he was putting it together. Um, and Andy Katz, who I'm working with right now, we're doing a book on national parks. Uh, he was the photographer. Who, in fact, he did most of um, Dan's work, actually. But, you know, it was, we had to decide to put it. You know, I wanted to print it on the wrong side of the board so it was soft and I wanted to print it in dark blue. You know, it's, it's ruined now when you see a, 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 a CD. But, um, yeah, it was, very, it was very textural, too. You could actually feel it, you know. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, we could do all sorts of tricks in those days. And because uh, Irving Azoff was his manager and everyone was scared shitless of Irving at the label, I got what I wanted, you know, and therefore got what Dan wanted. So in the oh, end, it just let me go, you know, okay, we were on the same page. <laughs> right, which is why you did eight albums. Yes. <laughs> um, any fun memories of party beyond the uh, drinking in high altitudes? Uh, uh, Hanging with the Eagles and with Dan because I know that they had some wild nights. I don't think I've had. I don't think I've ever been with the Eagles and Dan at the same time. I mean, we've been we've all been in the same venues at this, one or the other. You know, like uh, Lucy's El Adobe for one. You know, which was the great hangout for the Eagles and Linda and the Governor and. Uh, but I don't think I've ever been in the same room. But I mean, I've, I've, you know, uh, I've misbehaved with Dan. Yeah, and Dan's. Been- <laughs> <laughs> you got thrown out of a bar or in, bar, in, in Boulder once. Yes, right. You got thrown out of a bar in Boulder. What happened? I, we just left. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I feel like you just glossed over that? <laughs> I did. Yes, I do. I'm sorry about that. I'll tell you privately. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll, we'll we'll put a bookmark in that for now. <laughs> 
There's a few stories I'm not going on the air with, I believe. <laughs> hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, let's get back to the interview. Well, speaking of another friend who you also did quite a bit of work with, I'm I'm hitting them all. Um, yeah. Jimmy Buffett, who I'm oh. such a big fan of oh, Jimmy cool. Buffett. Uh, and, you know, I, I wanted to touch on this last time. Um, but you two, I believe you two still work together, do you? Yeah, well, uh, yes. I mean, I he's not done, done, done anything recently. Though. I hear he's going out on tour again. So I may be doing the tour promotion. I don't know. Um, but it's such a drag doing all that stuff. Uh, but I, I don't know if he's going to make another album. We keep sort of regurgitating such tracks and things. And uh, uh, he's a very he's a very nice man. He's a, he, he kind of pisses me off because he he always mentions me actually when he does interviews. 
when they talk about covers. But he always has to sort of put a caveat on saying, well, I'm surprised he's still working because he's so old now. You know, I'm nine months older than him, right? <laughs> I'm surprised he's still working because he's so old now. Yeah, no, I don't get a chance to sort of shout. But it's funny, though. It's, it's okay, you know, because he's a very, very nice man. <laughs> yeah, well, you did some some incredible work on his albums there. And I read a story online somewhere, um, and it was about you heading out to meet him in Key West. Right. And when you arrived, he was nowhere to be found for a few days but he had left the keys to his 1965 land rover and there was a note on the fridge right basically said hey kosh back soon it was yeah it was initials it was yeah jk beer in fridge back soon jb (laughs) (laughs) back in a few days (laughs) well yeah and he was it was three days before he turned up yeah so i was fine (laughs) i lived in the house you know where was he he were, I don't know. He landed in his little, you know, seaplane and whatever else. And he had his girlfriend at the time with him, Queenie, who was like six foot something. And he's not very tall, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was a spectacle. Yes, I know. I'm sure to see them together. Um, there's, you know, one album I wanted to ask you about, which I found so interesting. It was Marvin Gaye's Here, My Dear. Oh, yes. And there was a lot uh, that went into that album. Um, You know, for those that are trying to picture it uh, in their heads, there was the back cover of it features a temple with the word matrimony, which is collapsing around this sculpture of a romantic couple. And then there's a fold-out illustration inside the original double album, which shows a man's hand reaching across to the hand of a woman's about to give her a record. And right. the hands are extended on a monopoly board with the legend judgment. And it was just interesting because on the man's side, there are tape recorders, there's a piano. And then on the woman's side, there's a house, a car, and a ring. Right. And these scales of justice right above yes. the, uh, <laughs> the game. It was all symbology, the whole thing. It's such a word of symbology. Um, yeah, it was a lot into that because it was, you know, he had to give everything. Yeah, all the royalties, everything had to go to his wife from that record. It's a fabulous record, too. It's a fabulous record. So did you sit down and really kind of plan that out with him? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, I was kind of, this, this whole sh- show was dumped on me by, what was the record label? It was MCA, but before, um, and I got stacks of pictures and planes to play with, and I read the story and whatever else. And it was from my point, with, uh, Michael Bryan was my, the illustrator I was working with, um, it was really more of a fait play. Like, you know, it was almost like, here, you my dear, you know, we've done it. And, you know, it was approved. It was like, you know, I wasn't briefed. We just took it all in, in stride and then produced it. And if he hated it, we would have been thrown away and I'd never get paid, you know, but he loved it. He loved it. And this happened right after his divorce? Is this? Yeah. Uh, yeah, either that or it was just coming. I don't know. I mean, it was so long ago. Sure, sure. But it obviously there was something going on with his wife. I mean, even the title itself, Here, My Dear, you know, it just implies, just take it all. <laughs> and, yeah. So, yes, that was right. Yeah, it was kind of a milestone for me, actually, as well, because that sort of, you know, that sort of, I started out to get a different kind of artists. I mean, I started sort of, you know, things were starting to happen and I wasn't just solely dealing with sort of country rock, you know. Right. How was it, your interactions with Marvin? 
very brief, actually. It wasn't sort of intimate, not like Richard Pryor, which was, I don't know, I don't know why I brought him up, but that, that was a different sort of, uh, um, I, I put them both as gods, I guess, in some respects. And, uh, yeah. Yes, I know you did Richard Pryor's album. Yes. I don't know if I should say that. <laughs> well, you can, I won't, but you know. <laughs> but we all know what we're talking about, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you did an album for Richard Pryor. I can imagine that with with a slightly racy title. Yeah, and and Warner Brothers didn't like the title. I wonder why. Um, And for some reason, they didn't seem keen enough to confront him. And so they sent me to see Richard. And um, I, I turned up at the Warner Brothers lot and he was in a trailer. And I sort of knocked on the door very sheepishly. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this I'm going to meet a god. And I'm this little honky here telling him he can't have his title. And the door opened, and the man was charming, absolutely charming. And he said, no, no, I'm not, you know, before we start, I'm not going to change the title because it's exactly what it's all about, you know. And I want a cover that describes what it's all about. And that's the whole point. Um, and he was thinking at this time, this was the last time he was ever going to use this word. It was going through his head. So we sat down and we talked about Lenny Bruce and we talked about comedians and I knew um, Lewis Black at the time and he was, you know, um, you know, we sort of shared a joint and it was the most fabulous afternoon. And I went back to Warner Brothers and said, no, he's not changing the title. And off we went, you know. That was it. They said, okay. Well, they couldn't say anything, you know. It was Richard Pryor and he, was, they, he sold, sold a lot of records, you know. Yeah. And he, they, he, I made the point for him. You know, that no, this is the story of America, you know, and black experience. Mm-hmm. And now we're at the bicentennial, and this is what's gone on. And it hasn't changed, has it? You know, and that's the whole point. No, it hasn't. Yeah. Was he sober? I mean, aside from the joint. It was when we started, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like both of you, though, were feeling fine by the end of it. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're just slightly high. It wasn't bad. You know, we weren't. Just a joint. Just a joint and some orange juice, I think. Yeah. <laughs> he was a character. Yeah, and I never saw him again or anything. You know, that was the end of that. So just an afternoon together, and that was it. Yeah, was that chalk up was one of the great experiences of my life. I remember. I was mad at her, she was mad at me. No, baby, understanding my condition, I must surely be a wishing. When you put these albums together, um, you know, if anybody looks at uh, the Who's Who's Next or Abbey Road or Hotel California, once the final photo is selected, what was it that you did to these photos? Because they almost look like, you know, a drawing at the end of it. They've been stylized. The colors have been changed without computers. There's no such thing as an unretouched photograph. I'm sorry. There's no such thing. You know, you've got to flick. There's always something to flick or something. Um, but yes, I generally try and, you know, having listened to the music and I look at the photographs and I think, well, this is a little dull. We need to, you know, get a little more out of this, you know. So Abbey Road. Um, had a grey sky and we made that more blue and the trees were like, you know, London dark, dirty trees. 
Um, so it's a little bit of easing here and there, you know, just to make the whole thing, you know, more attractive and appealable. Because you can, basically people are buying records. I mean, it's, it's it's commercial art, which is a dirty word, you know, but people are buying these things and they need to be attracted to them. You know, and you also to describe what's in the in the grooves when they had grooves, you know. How did you do it though back then? Oh, the, you want the secrets now? <laughs> yes. Ah, okay. I'm 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 walking into secretive territory here. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends. You know, I mean, how do you do it? You you look at something and you know immediately that the cropping's wrong or something's got to happen. It's got to be made more dynamic. Dynamic, you know. Um, or it needs to be framed, or it needs to burst out of the frame, or you've got to make sure that the typography doesn't interfere with the picture and vice versa, so people could, you know, in those days there were rules, because for racking, the title always had to be at the top. So when people flick through the racks, they could see, you know. So when you were being audacious and do Abbey Road and do Hotel California without any title at all, um, you must be pretty sure that people are panting for that record in the first place, and they're going to go straight to, you know, E for Eagles or B for Beatles. You know. Right. They're looking for it. Yeah. Abbey Rowe had had no title at all. And it didn't have Beatles on the back on the first pressing. That's gone. That's now been changed. So, but Abbey Rowe's been through changes all the time. And apart from changing the colours, colour palettes, you know, Paul's cigarettes disappeared and then come back again, then disappeared and then come back again. <laughs> There's been a lot of changes to that. Yes, right. There's ways of enhancing his inks you can use to make things, you know, brighter. There's surfaces of the board. You know, you can cut holes in the board to look through things. You know, there's things you can do to sort of, because uh, people are going to sit down and they're going to open this and they're going to read the lyrics and they're going to enjoy themselves listening to the music and looking at the images, the pictures right. of the band. And they've got to be good, you know. Right. Or they're going to be punk and bad. They're going to be really bad, you know. But you know, have to know how to do something bad. You've got to know the rules before you break them. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Another one that I absolutely loved, and I actually remember seeing this in record stores when I was a kid, and I was strangely attracted to it because I was trying to figure out what was going on. Oh dear! You did a couple of albums with Ario Speedwagon. Yes. And 81's High Infidelity. Right. And for those of you that are, you know, trying to recall these album covers, there's a woman, I don't know if she's a stripper or a call girl or whoever it is, but she's in a hotel room getting ready and there's some man putting on a record. Yes, that's that's Kevin Curran himself, the band leader, if you like. Ah. Um, and uh, the set actually was a... Um, well, high infidelity because it, I needed a, I needed to get a, an old hi-fi record player, which I actually because I had a I have a collection of old junk and that's one of mine. Um, we built the set, and she may be a hooker, she may be a girl from it. I mean, she's putting lipstick on. Yeah, but the whole point is infidelity, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the set actually was left over from a Martin Mull shoot that we did. We did uh, sex and violins. Um, where he's lounging on a bed and there's a, if you look there, it's the same Venetian blinds and whatever else. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there's also a photograph going around where I'm posing in the woman's position to show her exactly what to do. My God, you should see that. No, you don't want to see it, actually. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, you've got to show, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm directing, I'm, you know, choreographing, as it were. So, Kevin, you've got to move over there, you know, um, and you've got to do that. So, 
So anyway, that's the story behind that. And the follow-up, of course, was Good Trouble. That's when they've left the hotel room and they've left all the mess in there. Yes, yes. Before it was nighttime, now it's day. Yes. I mean, at that age, I didn't understand that the two were linked. <laughs> but Good Trouble was, yes, the aftermath. And it's funny because I had a guest on um, who I will uh, you know, leave nameless who said that he had gone on the road with REO Speedwagon. And he said the antics of REO Speedwagon rivaled that or surpassed that of Zeppelin. <laughs> oh my God, no, that's impossible. Oh, Lord. Which really surprised me. I yeah, thought. I mean I, I mean, I knew the band well enough to get them into studios and whatever else. And I know I did find, um, while I was talking with Kevin in the Oak Studio in, in Burbank, I went out the back to see what was going on. And my son, who was 12 at the time, was sitting in the band drinking beer with them. I thought, oh, this is great. You know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> 12 years old. Yeah, oh, well, I think you threw up soon afterwards. I don't think. <laughs> there serves you right. That's right. ELO, I know, is one that you've talked about so much because you did their logo right. and you did, you know, a couple of their albums, a new world record out of the blue. Um, and I know they still use that logo, I believe. They certainly do. Yeah. But they've, they've adapted it a little bit. So it can't because they don't know who owns the copyright. You know, is it them? Is it me? Or is it a label, which is defunct, which is Jet? Um, so when they go on stage, you notice it's totally different. People ask me for permission to reproduce it, to which I say yes, as long as you put my name on it. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that back then, did they just pay you up front for, say, like a logo or something like that? Well, what it was, if they needed an album cover and um, for new for new world record, and I said, I think you guys need a logo because there's, you know, what am I selling here? You know, you've got a, there's no image. The logo itself is. One of my dad's jukeboxes, the top, the ELO in the middle is like the General Electric sort of logo. Um, and that spells music to me and light and orchestra and music, you know, and um, I put that together and molded that and put it on the album cover floating in space. And I just flown in from um, London. I went over the pole and I just seen the, the Aurora Borealis for the first time in my life. So I threw that in. Yeah, it's it like Disney. They airbrushed it and put little stars sprinkling in it. Yes. So I was playing frisbee with my son, and the ELO logo was being fabricated as stickers, which we used to put everywhere. So I stuck one on a frisbee, and just threw it to my son. As it soaked through the air, I thought, "Well, that's it. That's out of the blue. That's where it's got to go." You know. And from that point on, it became you know another iconic sort of treatment. Inspired <laughs> by a game of frisbee. Yeah, well, that's the way it comes. You come to you in the shower. You just don't know where it's coming. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, sometimes you can sweat it for days trying to work it out. They, they don't all come easy as this. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would imagine. And it's funny because right before this, 
I was online and, you know, I was looking up something for Instagram or whatever it was. And I found this incredible shot. It must've been 1978. It was you and Linda Ronstadt. I don't know if she's on the boardwalk in Venice or where she is in LA, but you're looking at the camera, giving it a funny, giving whoever's taking the picture a funny look. She's got both her hands on your arms. You're balancing her while she's got roller skates on. That's right. Teaching her to skate. That's right. Yes, it was for the Living in the USA album cover. Yeah, there's a lot of pictures of that, sort of from that series, yeah. Because she could skate, but she wasn't that great at it. And I was used, my son had been teaching me to skate, you know, because I'd never skated in my life before. And poor Jim Shade, a photographer, what's going on? Are you <laughs> That's, yes, that yes. Was. It's from that day. And the yeah. one the, the one that I'm seeing is her, she's bent over looking down. Oh, that's right, her. yeah. And yeah, she's wobbly, right. Yeah, that's the color one. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, and poor Jim Shea had to learn to skate backwards to take pictures, you know. And halfway through, I said, look, let's rent the truck to sit in the truck and we'll go backwards. You know? <laughs> because I'm sorry, I've been roller skating for decades and I still can't roller skate backwards. Oh, well, yeah, I know. I mean, I, I mean, I, yeah, I was I was armor plated when I was <laughs> sort of skating. I was but you see me in the photographs. I'm not, you know. I took the pads off into me. It looks a lot cooler that way, right? You say, "Well, I baggy old pants on this." <laughs> I look a mess actually. Got a scrappy beard, you know, because we had to re- have renter cops to get rid of all the crowds. She was larger than life. Yeah, she was fabulous, and she, you know, she went through all these things we put her through. You know, she was uh, enjoyed every moment of it. But the final photo is her, um, you know, touching both sides of a wall. Yeah, uh, that was James's hallway from his studio to the front door. And she was just going out there. We were just taking publicity pictures, but it ended up on the cover. Yeah, it's a great shot. It was, you know, I hadn't got a green card. I hadn't got a, you know, I wasn't a citizen yet. And um, I was kind of being nervous about living in the USA myself at this point. Well, the green card had run out, actually. But I <laughs> So you were just kind of squatting. I was yeah, waiting for the knock on the door. But however, I became a citizen very soon thereafter. Oh, there you go. I want to ask you, though, based on this being my rock moment, can you remember the first album you ever bought? Oh, Lord. Well, I, I, I know the first album I ever shoplifted, if that's any good. <laughs> shoplifted works, too. <laughs> Um, oh, I know, I've got it, I've got it. Chico Hamilton. I've still got it on the Vogue label. Jazz, you know. Um, I can still play it in Glorious Mono. It's fabulous, yeah. Chico Hamilton in Hi-Fi. Oh, you were a big jazz fan. Yeah, well, sort of. I was pretending to be, you know. I mean, I wasn't into bebop, you know. I was into trad jazz. And when I got to art school, of course, trad jazz was the big thing, you know. So, um but yeah, so I just see, you know, as soon as I'd left home, you know, doors were flew open. Musical experiences went crazy. See, that's incredible. At that time in, in the 60s or the late 50s, and so many things, like you said, musically were changing. The sounds were changing. Influences were coming in from all over the world, especially in the UK. And then obviously that rock and roll was thrown back at us. But I know that... Um, 
many people that I've talked to that grew up in the UK really had a fascination with American jazz. Sure, sure. blues and rock. I mean, yeah, because because of my dad's business with the jukeboxes, of course, we had stacks of 45s coming in. So I'm, you know, playing Chuck Berry. I'm playing all this stuff on the boxes, you know. So that's where I started with, well, wait a minute, this is rock and roll, this is something, you know, because I was very sheltered as far as music was concerned from my parents. I mean, they just liked the Tchaikovsky's 1812 or something like that. So I hadn't really discovered um, rock and roll until I was managing my dad's store for a while while he was, you know, sick. And all of a sudden it's like, my God, Carl Perkins, listen to this, you know, and then so you start finding friends who are listening to the same stuff. Yeah. That was really the time for it, too. Yeah. yeah. Every great rock and roll band started that way. Yeah. A lot of bands would come out of art schools. Seems to be art and design came together, which I think is sort of way influenced the fact that we are now, or have been, designing for music as opposed to letting record labels just stick a picture on the top, you know. Right. Which is the way it used to be, right? People in little lab coats. What I mean, what was what was artistic about that? Yes, right, true. Yeah. Is it more became a form of self-expression instead of just trying to get a top 40 or something is people were really trying to bear their souls through their music. Yeah, precisely. I, the, the floodgates, in my opinion, were opened by Sgt. Pepper. You know, that was everything. From that point on, you know, it was, it was the artist in control and not the label in control of the, how the images were. There would be fights because marketing would go crazy over things, you know. Show that scream at me. You can't put this out. No one will buy the album, you know. Sorry, but, you know. Well, how do you know if it's never been done? Precisely, yeah. But, you know, I mean, hasten down the wind, I got a lot of problems with, you know, because are we selling Linda's nipples? Are we selling music? You know, so. Right. You were selling her breasts. So, um, yeah, things have changed. But, of course, things have shrunk. But now the 12 inches coming back, you know. Thank God. I mean, I don't think I'm going to be doing much of it, to be honest, because all my clients now are, you know, resting in peace somewhere, most of them. <laughs> Let's just go to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you never know. You never know what's going to come your way. Oh, and you've got this body of work, I mean, that will live on and on and on. Yeah, I'm hoping there's going to be a documentary about it and I can sort of, you know, it's going to be a decent one. That sort of, I'll leave something behind, that, you know. You know but before I croak, I just want to make some last statement. <laughs> when, when can we expect this documentary? I don't know. They take two years to make. They take a while. Well, ducks tend to take more than sort of features, you know. So, And I'm not making it, so I can't control it. All I can do is, uh, you know nudge it and say no you can't do that you can't say that and we're not having that rod stewart story so yeah we didn't touch rod stewart did we We didn't touch rod stewart no 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 we didn't i i was told not to oh you were oh no jane got you <laughs> but i hopefully hopefully there's something in the documentary <laughs> yes oh yeah and in the book if i get the book together yes you know <laughs> i mean lawyers don't forget <laughs> yes. exactly your wealth of stories, which is why we had to have you on twice. That was really cool. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so, so much. Gosh, I appreciate it.
All right, a big thank you to Kosh for coming on for round two of My Rock Moment. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe to My Rock Moment wherever you listen to this podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at LA Woman Rocks. All right, we'll see you at the next episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.